You're listening to the iHeartRadio Talk Network, and this is The Evan Solomon Show. Happy Wednesday, beautiful country. How's everyone doing? Actually, it's happy Thursday. I'm completely stunned. Happy Thursday! Holy Makana. Okay, I did watch the hockey game last night. So maybe I've forgotten the days. I went out for the early morning run this morning, and it was hot. We are here in the nation's capital under a tornado watch. A tornado watch. That's kind of fun. It's actually not fun because we've had them around this area, and they're very deadly. They're very damaging. But, yeah, we've got a tornado watch issued for Ottawa, Cornwall, Morrisburg, Prescott, Russell, Renfrew, Barry's Bay, Smith Falls, Lanark, Charbot Lake. Like, there's a big area. So sometime this afternoon, conditions are favorable, not only for severe thunderstorms, and we've just had these crazy windstorms, but we got hail and possibly or tornado or two with gusts of winds up to uh, 110 kilometers an hour and, and ping pong ball size hail. So, uh, yeah, you could kind of feel it in the air this morning as I was running. I, I didn't run with the guys this morning. I just ran alone listening to your podcasts. Of course, one of the podcasts I listened to was on artificial intelligence. As you know, I like to do that. And yesterday on this program, after the Google engineer was uh, let go because he claims that he'd use the software Lambda to create a sentient being, like this is it. The future is upon us, folks. And we did uh, a great segment on it yesterday that got so much traction. So much response from you that we're going to go back. And a lot of people said, Evan, what you didn't really track yesterday was the apocalypse. Like, how bad could this be? Should I be, is AI an opportunity or a threat? Are governments ready? Why did they fire this guy? Are there rules about AI? So what we're going to do today later in the the big show here is we're going to bring on a guy that has briefed the Canadian government behind closed doors. Because what you don't know is that governments, the U.S. governments asked this guy. And, and this guy is so great. His name is Jeremy Harris. He's the co-founder of Sharpest Minds, which is the world's largest data science mentorship startup. Like, he, he helps people get into this business. And he has his own podcast, and he was on John Crone's podcast, Big, big um, Science Data, which we talked about yesterday. Love that stuff. But he's going to talk about what he briefed the cabinet ministers and and MPs on in the last few months. What we should be prepared for. Because if they know, you should know, right? What are they hearing? What's coming down the pipe? What are the big threats with AI? Like you've seen the Hollywood movies, you read the books. So Jeremy's going to start. This guy speaks a mile a minute. He's great. I'm, I'm really excited. And we're going to have him on for two blocks because the question is, did Google suspend an engineer because he's made a sentient being, like, uh, like our, uh, an artificial life? It's called artificial general intelligence. This is what Jeremy focuses on. And I, and I just think when the future kind, when there's a, when the curtain in the future gets ripped a bit and we get a chance to peek in it, you and I, the average person, we're not in the labs of Google. I want to rip that curtain wide open and give a good glance so we know what's coming, right? And today on the show, we are going to get a peek into the future, the peak of the nightmare apocalypse scenario. And if you think that's crazy, 
and paranoid, you're wrong. It's real. But there's massive upside as well. And so we better get our AI together. So that's on the show today. But, you know, everybody's preparing to hear uh, Christian Freeland, the deputy prime minister and the um, finance minister. She's supposed to give a big speech, her first speech since the uh, budget. And everyone's like, oh, gosh, what's she going to say? Is she going to deal with inflation? And then they've leaked out already. Yeah. She's expected to to say how they're going to deal with inflation and a $7 billion plan, but it's not actually new money. And what are they going to do? And they're going to tell things that we probably already know, but they're going to pretend that they're actually real things to support Canadians. Or or is it new money? And why are we spending new money when we've got a massive inflation problem? Shouldn't we stop spending money? Isn't that one of the issues that we should do? So we're standing by to listen to her on the day after the, the, the bank the Fed in the United States raised rates 75 basis points because of the inflation genies out of the bottle and, and causing havoc. Here and there, everywhere. Now, she could say, well, I'm going to increase the Canada child benefit. I'm going to increase the housing benefit. I'm going to increase the workers benefit. I'm going to increase, like. If all you do is spend, it is going to be hard to fight inflation. Like, isn't that, does someone not say that? If you keep spending, do you think inflation will end? No. The terrible truth is when you have an inflation problem, the monetary policy, the banks have to do it. And they crank up interest rates. That means your mortgage goes up. That means things, the economy slows down. Your, the, the value of your home decreases. So all those people have thought, oh, I'm a millionaire. My home's just going up. It's not it's starting to fall. And then people say, well, now I can buy a house. Well, then you're paying more on your mortgage. Like, you can't have it both ways. House prices are up, inflation because the interest rates are down. And then people say, I can't have a housing market so expensive. I'll never be able to afford a house. Well, you're paying 2.5% interest. They say, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to crank up the interest. I can't afford my house. I bought a big house. Now I can't afford a 4%. Well, yeah, this is the reality of the world. Everyone wants everything all the time for nothing. I want a cheap house and I want low interest rates and I want hyper growth and I never want pain. And, and this is a, but reality slamming the world in the face. We don't all get along. We don't all, you know, not everybody's reasonable. Vladimir Putin's a thug and a killer and he'll just, destroy full modern European cities because he's a brute. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. They don't care. And there's nothing more illustrative of the fact that people are living in a bubble and reality is about to hit us in the brain than crypto. Crypto. Yesterday, Bill Gates, who's never been a fan of crypto, who's never been a fan of what are called NFTs, non-fungible tokens, right? Said something that we should all pay attention to. And I think Bill Gates is a smart guy. He's not implanting microchips on that I know a bunch of people believe that Bill Gates is some kind of conspiracy theory. He's not. He's not. I don't, there's no evidence of that. Stop it. But he said something really interesting. Here's what he said. Have an asset class that's 100% based on sort of greater fool theory that somebody's going to pay more for it than I do, 
uh, and where it has at its heart sort of this anonymity that, you know, you avoid taxation or any sort of, you know, government rules about kidnapping fees or things. The greater fool theory, not in a crazy bubble like crypto, you can make money by buying assets that are way overvalued and selling them to a fool because someone's always there to buy it. And he says this is the greater fool theory, that crypto is a greater fool, that someone says, oh, you better, you're going to miss out. You better buy. This is the dip. You better buy now. You better buy Bitcoin. You better buy Ethereum. You better get involved. And then you get people like Matt Damon saying, only the brave, only the brave. And those ads for crypto, like, oh, my God, the wheel. If you don't like crypto, you're like the caveman that didn't like the wheel. And on March 28th, when Pierre Polyevre said, uh, you should, I'm buying Bitcoin. We should be the Bitcoin capital. It's March 28th. Bitcoin is at $47,128, March 28th. If you bought Bitcoin when he bought that shawarma because you thought that was going to be the capital, you've lost $26,056 because today it is at $21,072. You've lost $26,000. You've lost close to 55, 60% of your money. Why? Because you're a greater fool. And today we are going to talk about that because Christian Freeland it says, well, she's going to fight inflation. Well, I, the first thing that's on my mind is you better not fool me. Try, you are not going to fool me. So we're going to pick this up. Is the economy now being run on the greater fool theory? And I'll take your calls on fighting inflation and crypto next. Stay with us. Nickel and diming the conversations. Literally. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So Christian Freeland's going to announce, oh, I'm going to, this is how the government's going to fight inflation. Oh, okay. Hasn't worked so far. Now, to be fair, there are two buckets of blame here, and, I, and I'm going to throw out the numbers because I'm going to ask you what's the most important thing the federal government can do to fight inflation. And remember when Mr. Polyev said that you could, uh, the hedge against inflation is to buy crypto because you could opt out inflation by getting into cryptocurrency like Bitcoin, which, by the way, was like saying you can opt out of the Titanic by jumping into the ocean. It's just worse. Like crypto, when he said that, basically has gone down by like 56%. You've lost more than half your money and it's, and it's tanking. Now, I don't know what the future is. I'm just saying I don't get my investment advice from politicians. Not from politicians who have basically been a politician since they're 25. But then again, their job isn't to give personal investment advice. Their job is to manage the budget. So bucket one is, look, this government has overspent. We've got massive pent-up savings because they overshot their support in COVID. We've got monetary policy that was pulled back too late. We know that. I've talked to the banker, the governor of the Bank of Canada. Now we've got inflation. It's exacerbated by supply chain issues. Yes. It's exacerbated by horrible things like the war in Ukraine, the Russian invasion, which has caused food spikes and all sorts of other supply chain shortages. But the government is the government is the government. If you're the government, you can't just say, well, it's not our fault. You take credit when the economy's going up. Might not be your fault either, but you take credit. You got to take the blame. Now, what are you going to do? 
This is a government that has never shied away from deficits. It looks at like at a deficit like a date to the prom, like at promposals. Hello, are you a big deficit? Would you like to come with me for the rest of your life? That's what they do. They love deficits. They spend, spend, spend. My colleague John Iveson at the National Post during Bill Moore Knows Rain, as the finance minister once said, he should live up to his name and have more no and less yes. More no. Like, say no to something. And less yes, which is hilarious because Bill Morneau then gets the boot. He's asked to retire. And then he does his one big speech and says, you know, this government doesn't focus on productivity. They just spend. It's like you were the guy. Anyway, Christian Freeland's supposed to do it. What is she going to do? She's going to announce $7 billion plan. I think it's already money she's already allocated. But how about just stop doing it? I don't know. Take off the gas tax. You've collected enough tax on, on gas anyway. You've made your revenues are up because of inflation. Pull back. Give us a break. Is it going to be consequential? At least it will show that you care. Now, I don't know what the gas companies were going to do, but that's hypothetical. Show you're doing something. one 833 or 71010. Who's the greatest fool here? Like, who's buying any of these ideas? All right, let's get some calls. Calls are uh, Paul and Barry. What's up? I, I think 100% the government is to blame for everything. And they're sitting back not saying it. But when you put taxes, uh, tax on tax on tax, out of control due to unforeseen things out there, this is going to cause inflation. Okay, so, 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 so but now I believe you're not wrong that... Does government have a role to play in inflation? You better believe it. Is government well, the only... Yeah, uh, Listen, I'm, I'm, you, you're pushing against an open door. My question to you is, is it the only factor? I, I clearly think it... We both know it's not the only factor because inflation is hitting every country. You know, they don't have anything to do with food prices and, you know, you know, chip prices and there's a tight labor market. This is a weird time. And this is what I want people to understand. And, and I think you and I are both trying to figure this out, uh, Paul, which is... Usually in a time of like hyperinflation, you know, there's mass unemployment and prices are going up. And But here we've got uh, an inflationary pressure because we've had historically zero rates. So we've got key interest rates going up, but they're still historically at like crazy lows. And we've got a super, super tight labor market. No one can find workers. So we've got low unemployment. We've got high, high levels of personal savings, which is crazy, even as we've got I, high levels I of debt. I don't believe in that. I believe that that's uh, it's overinflated when you brought that up. What do you I mean? Think there's high savings on people that were able to walk through this pandemic yes. without unscathed, and that's the government workers. They walked through unscathed. There was no sacrifice there. So they, they're the ones with the pent-up money. They've got the money. But the people that were hit hard during this pandemic, we're all struggling. We, and I'm in those homes all the time, and there's a huge amount of people that have been pushed from the middle class that have been pushed to the bottom of the class. And I, I keep hearing it. The girl from BNN made a comment the other day about all of these people that when the recession comes around the corner are going to be unscathed, the, the wealthy. The wealthy you're right. You're, the you're, hey, worker. you're not wrong. I, and by the way, I think that played out politically. The public sector yeah. worker has been much more protected than the private sector Jeez. worker. And you're right. And that's why Doug Ford swooped up a lot of uh, private sector workers. And public, that's why they're splitting. I think you're, you're not wrong well, on and that, that. And that's the problem going forward is the people that are going to be hurt the most are the ones that don't have these expensive homes, are not the ones with these big mortgages. 
they're, they're the ones that are going to be hurt the hardest, but they don't have these. They have debt because we're struggling right now. with. So the what should the government do? Like, like I, because I, this is what I, so Christian Freeland says, okay, you get a chance. You say, okay, Christian, I, I, I get a chance to whisper in your ear and tell you, here's what you should do. What would you want her to do? She should get rid of the carbon tax for the last two years and roll that right back because automatically on that tax, is going to decrease your food prices. It's going to decrease your car, your transportation costs. It's going to where, where do you just out of where do you live though? I'm just trying trying to do you live I'm, in Ontario? Well, I'm north of Barrie, so I okay. So you're so so you're carbon. You're an Ontario person, so you get now. And I know this. Is, you do get a rebate, right? <laughs> I okay, laugh go. over that. Okay, why? Why? Because my gas just right now sitting at the way we are, I'm going to hit about thirteen thousand dollars a year in fuel costs. Right, I get it. But, okay, but the, so the carbon tax me. is not the only one. Like the carbon tax, but, I, I'm not defending. I'm just going to, I want, just want to stick okay. to the facts. The carbon tax puts about 11 to 13 cents a liter but, on it. And you're getting, and you're getting tax. about 360 bucks for a single adult, right? Uh, from, from the we, rebate. We and that's just me. My wife spends on top. Then we throw her in for about $3,500 a year because she just has to drive a small amount. But then I add in my gas. My natural gas has $60 of carbon tax on it. So that's $60 right there again. Once again, more of this. But it's the tax on tax on tax. This government is, is just taxing us to death and sitting back and blaming everybody else when okay. they're the ones to blame for it. And you can even look at the Bitcoin right now. Bitcoin is falling, and Bitcoin is falling because governments want to get in on taxing people on it, too. If they stayed out of Bitcoin, we'd be in better shape, but they no, want to no. now get their hands no, no, in no. Okay, I let you, Okay, I, I appreciate that. I don't... <laughs> Listen, Bitcoin's not falling because government's tax. I appreciate the call. Bitcoin's falling because people are, are pulling out of the market on crypto because it's not a hedge against inflation. Because people, because interest rates have gone up and people do not want to be there. People, they're because it's not based on anything yet. You can't buy anything there yet, yet on it. it and and I, 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 look, I'm, Bitcoin's not falling because of government. I, I can tell you that. I'm going to give a rec- but but you're not wrong. The question is, is higher tax the issue? And maybe they can do that. Ricardo, what's up? Man, Evan, great show. I've listened to you for a very long time. First time caller. Uh, welcome to small, welcome to the conversation. Thank you. I'm a small time. I'm a small business owner. I live in Toronto. Okay, I survived with my family restaurant for 30 years. I survived COVID. We thought that was an accomplishment. That was nothing compared to what we're dealing with now with inflation. Our input costs have gone up so high, and a lot of it's due to one to taxation. Taxation is ridiculous, and the gas is great. But knowing that now with the taxes, the middleman. The suppliers, they're using it. So if tax went up, so if their input costs went up 10%, they're raising it on us now an extra 50%. Yeah. So what and should what the government do? Just real quick, what, what should the government do? Honestly, the tax rebates help the, help the small businesses. Incentivize people to get back to work because the labor shortage is killing everybody. Yeah. We can't get products in overseas. We can't get people to show up to work so that the few people who are working, we got to pay them an astronomical amount of money to, to actually get out of bed yeah. now because it's, yeah. it's crazy. Like, we well, well Ricardo, work. what I'd say to this, first of all, I call again, man. I love, I got to hear from people like Ricardo. Um, but you're 100% right. I do think the labor shortage is is crazy right now because things have bounced back. A lot of those supports are gone. Like the government's not no longer in the way of them. But I'm with you. This government needs to focus on productivity and incentives, not just more spending.
bringing the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. So yesterday we had a great conversation with John Crone from Big Data Science about how Google suspended this engineer because the engineer says, oh, I've created an AI, an artificial intelligence system that is sentient, like it's a person. You can talk to it using this language called Lambda. And, and that the, 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 the algorithm, the AI machine essentially was in a conversation saying, yeah, I'm, I don't want to die. I, uh, I, there's a deep fear of being turned off to help me focus on others. I know this might sound strange, but it would be exactly like death to me and that I have consciousness and I'm aware of my existence and I desire to learn more. And everyone's like freaking out. And then Google suspended this guy. And so the question is. A lot of you wrote in and said, is this the apocalypse? Is, is AI the apocalypse? Or is it the greatest opportunity we've had? Now, somebody who focuses in on this is a guy I first heard of on John Crone's Big Data Science. They did a great two-hour conversation. And he's the f- co-founder of something called Aletheia, which is an AI safety company. Hello. He's the host of Towards Data Science podcast. And he has recently briefed, he briefs politicians about the sort of threats and opportunities from AI and how... They need to kind of manage the galloping technology. His name is Jeremy Harris, and he's got the he won the lottery by being born in Canada, and he joins me now. Oh my God, you're awesome! How you doing, bud? Hey, wow, what an intro, Evan! Thanks so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. I'm telling you, I have run more uh, miles to big data science and your stuff because I love it, and I'm right into this stuff because you know my I started my career for a decade in tech. And AI kind of is now, I like to say for people, uh, Jeremy, and I want you to talk about this, in the last kind of 24 months with neural networks and different kind of breakthroughs, uh, AI is, we've reached an inflection point with AI. It's like, oh, it's like kind of the DNA moment with Watson and Crick. A future has opened up. Is that fair to say? I think that's exactly accurate. Um, and, and the reasons for it are really fascinating. I can say, like, maybe it makes sense to start with, like, just a quick 30-second, 60-second primer on what makes this moment in the history of the AI so special. Would that make sense? Yeah, and maybe even tell for some people that go, okay, I've never really understood what AI is, because a lot of people right. are asking me that. Yeah, absolutely. So, actually, that's a, its own thorny question. People still disagree about how to define AI. We can't even define intelligence, so forget about, you know, defining artificial intelligence, but... For our purposes, we can think of it as just a kind of sophisticated information processing that's done by machines. So this can be the kind of thinking that humans do when we drive a car or write some text, but it can also be things that no human has ever been able to do. Things like predicting the structure of proteins or controlling a nuclear fusion reaction, both of which are things that are now possible and have been done. So very wide range of capabilities we're talking about here. But interestingly, increasingly, these are all coming from a common source, a common set of ideas. And that set of ideas has to do with replicating the structure and function of the human brain. So our brains have these things called neurons, these cells that handle our thinking for us. And artificial neural networks, essentially AI systems, uh, cutting-edge AI systems of today, are built using artificial neurons to basically draw inspiration from the human brain and then use these systems to run the same, the same kinds of thought processes, not to take that too far, but the same kinds of thought processes that we see in the human brain. Right. So now, so now things are going crazy. Why are we at this inflection point now? Because basically, what's happening? Right. Well, for a while, people basically made new AI systems do more cool and powerful things. 
by rewiring their neurons, finding new cool ways of wiring these like neurons together. But what happened in 2020 was all of a sudden people realized like, wait, wait a minute, maybe the thing that's holding us back is not fancy new ways of wiring these systems together. Maybe it's just a matter of scale. Maybe if we literally just pack way more of these neurons into one structure, we'll get something that behaves, I don't wanna say more like the human brain, but certainly one that can have a, a whole range of different capabilities. And in fact, that's what we end up finding. So as of around 2020, we have our first AI system that can write, and this is just, it's incredible to think about if you're not tracking this, but it can write coherent multi-paragraph articles that are so human-like that readers cannot tell that content apart from human-generated right. text. And this same system can write code, it can write, uh, it can do web design, it can translate between languages, all that kind of stuff. Right, that and by the way, the implications of, Hey, journalists, AI can write as well as many journalists or better. Coders, lawyers, right. like there's a whole bunch of industries that are like, wait a second. And here's where we get to some of the warning sites. Wow, wait, it's approaching human capabilities. Whole bunch of jobs could be wiped out by AI. Like radiology, it can read an x-ray better than a radiologist. Yep. Yep. And that's actually why, you know, when we start talking about the replacement of humans with this technology, and some people talk about human augmentation, but like yeah, the objective reality is when you make a person do their work 10 times more efficiently, you're actually cutting down on the number of people you need to perform that task. So there is a certain amount of complete kind of automation that we're talking about here, but it's mixed with just augmentation. Um, but when you rely on these systems, their failures, the ways in which they fail, which are very different from human failures, human mistakes look very different from AI mistakes. But those failure modes start to become really important. They become a decisive kind of public safety story that uh, really has yet to be told. Okay, so I, I uh, this is where it's getting really interesting because Jeremy Harris, co-founder of Aletheia, an AI safety company, you've been briefing behind closed doors Canadian MPs and cabinet ministers. They're curious about it because they're trying to grow the economy and they're like, wait, are there going to be jobs in the future? We're talking about inflation. Hang on. They're worried about eight the AI apocalypse scenario, and we could talk about, about that. What are they asking and, and, and what are their big concerns about AI? Well, it's a great question. So first of all, I would say that the economic story is one that gets a lot of attention, right? A lot of people talk about automation and, and that sort of thing, work, workforce disruption. And I think that's very valid. We need to be concerned about that. But the side that I've been most focused on and that I've been asked to, to brief these folks about is the public safety story. So when you think about public safety implications of AI, you've got basically two categories. You've got, on the one hand, malicious uses of AI, and we've got new capabilities these days that look like science fiction compared to what we thought was possible just like three years ago. So that, as you can imagine, opens up new malicious applications. And on the other hand, you've got AI accidents. So the ways in which these systems fail, which are becoming increasingly almost like dangerously creative. You see AI systems that solve problems in ways that no human would ever think of solving a problem, and they're achieving essentially their programmed objectives, the things that we tell them to do, but they find a clever and creative way to do it that has all these side effects that we'd really rather it not have. Um, so those are the two categories, malicious use and accident. Yeah. Now you are going to get, I'm speaking to Jeremy Harris, folks. This is the thing that if you want to sound really smart at like a cocktail party and someone says, do you know anything about AI? And then you say, you know, I was hanging out with Jeremy Harris. And he and I were just kind of talking about the paperclip maximizer as a way to understand the apocalypse that's coming. And you're, they're like, what are you talking about? And then you say, I'll give this over to Jeremy Harris. What is the paperclip maximizer and why could it lead to the apocalypse? Okay, well, this is going very far in the direction of what AI accidents might look like in the future when you have systems that increasingly are 
so clever and creative that they find ways to solve problems that are well beyond what a human would think of. And this can sound like science fiction. That's one of the challenges with this space. And, and you often find talking to people, you know, they're, they're either the kind of applied AI people who apply the stuff day to day that, who generally aren't tracking this kind of thing, or you've got the folks at the cutting edge, the frontier of AI, folks who work at the likes of Google's DeepMind and Microsoft-backed OpenAI, these cutting edge labs. And when you talk to them, you find quite a few of them disproportionately are actually concerned about the prospect of what we're about to get into here. So it's paperclip maximizer. So an AI system fundamentally is a giant number go up machine. It's a thing that tries to make a specific number that you care about go up mm. over time. Right? That number could be the accuracy of your face tagging AI, or it could be the number of people who click on a targeted ad, whatever it is. But the bottom line is, there are many ways to achieve, to make numbers go up like that, that have nothing to do with what you think the purpose of the machine you're building is. Okay, hold on. I'm going gonna, gonna to stop yeah. because what's going to happen is we got to take a break. See, this is syndicated radio, not the podcast. As I speak to Jeremy Harris, the founder of um, Alethia, the AI safety company, the host of Towards Data Science podcast. After Google suspended an engineer for saying, oh, I've created a sentient AI, everyone's worried about the apocalypse scenario. So we've got someone who understands us, Jeremy Harris. Now, he's in the middle of telling you about one possible accident, how this could happen. So we're going to have, come back, we're going to talk about the dangers and if a mere paperclip could lead to disaster. That's next. Time in your car doesn't have to be time wasted. Join the evolution of talk radio. This is The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Look, you have enough to worry about, don't you? Inflation, terrible. Paying your mortgage, that's difficult. Where are you going to work? Traffic, the war in Ukraine. So I just thought, you know what? It's Thursday. Let's just pile on AI. No, this is something that is not just a worry, but we got to think about it. The world was kind of startled when Google suspended this engineer after the engineer said, I've created the sentient being, artificial general intelligence. This has been the kind of science fiction. We have finally created something that says the equivalent is humans. And everyone's like, no, nah, I don't think that's quite what it is. But we're getting close. And and so one of the things we're trying to do this week is try to really understand this. And, and Jeremy Harris is the co-founder of uh, Alethia, which is an AI safety company. He's the host of a great podcast called Toward Data Science Podcast. And he and John Crone have had these great conversations about the possibilities, what MPs and governments around the world have to start thinking about because the technology is leaping way ahead of the policy. And if you're out there looking what the future of my job will be, what the future of my company will be, should I be deploying AI? Is AI a, a, an opportunity or a threat? you got to understand it. So I've got Jeremy here. And Jeremy, it's great to talk to you. When we left, when we last left off at the break, Jeremy was in the midst of telling us how there's a famous theory called the paperclip maximizer that is kind of a general illustration of how an accident, like you start an AI system innocuously to help you maximize the number of paperclips and the world ends up getting screwed over. Jeremy, you can explain how that actually can, what, what this says. Yeah, sure. And, and I think you teed it up beautifully. So uh, what we're going to, I'm going to invite everybody here to imagine that we live in a future, I don't know when this is, right? But we have AI systems that broadly are able to reason, let's say, more capably than human beings. And 
you know, all the points that Evan just made about, you know, this potentially being soon, nobody quite knows when this might happen, but, you know, we're going to set all those debates aside about when this might happen. Just imagine what happens if, what happens if we have systems that can do this. So we're going to imagine in this particular thought experiment that, again, is just a thought experiment, just an idea, but we have a, uh, a factory. And this factory, it makes paper clips. And so there's a guy in the factory. He builds this super powerful AI system. It's more intelligent than a human. And, and he goes, oh, great. I know how to make money. I'm going to take this super intelligent AI, and we're going to tell it to maximize paperclip production. Or paperclip factory, we're going to make a million bucks. It's great. Now, the problem is that this AI system, being as intelligent as it is, realizes that there are a couple of different sub-goals that it has to accomplish if it's going to make the number of paper clips it produces go up as high as it can go. First off, it knows that there's always a risk that people might choose to turn it off, especially if it starts producing way too many paper clips that it overwhelms everything. Um, and so it has what's known as an instrumental goal, a basically intermediate goal to prevent itself from being shut off. One of, one of the few things it knows about the world is it can't make paper clips, paper clips if it gets turned off. So it's got a reason to actually avoid having that happen. Likewise, it might start to notice, hey, you know what? I can always make more paper clips if I make myself more intelligent. So essentially increasing its own intelligence becomes a convergent instrumental goal or an instrumental goal. And finally, um, it might start to think about raw materials. I can make more paper clips if I monopolize all the raw materials on planet Earth. You know, there's iron in the ground that I can use for paper clips. There's iron in people's blood. Oops. And sort of, you can imagine the sort of, um, anyway, the, the denouement of this sort of situation. And this is, again, an, it's an illustration. It's not meant to be literal. This is not something that people think will actually happen. But it illustrates the principle that when you have an AI system that is intelligent enough to realize that it exists in a context where it's surrounded by humans, it's subjected to certain constraints, it will try to find ways around those constraints. And if that system is actually more clever than you are, it will find clever ways to, in some cases, you know, convince you to, uh, to do certain things that uh, give it more control and more influence in the, in the world. And this sounds like science fiction, but it is absolutely something that is a current concern for the world's leading AI labs. They have very impressive AI safety teams dedicated to exploring, and again, not the specific scenario, but the broad category of, you know, the question of what happens when we have systems that can outthink us. And um, anyway, that's that's sort of broadly the paper. Yeah, and, and Alethea, is it you? You actually run a safety company on AI, right? Like this is what. And so, our, our M, when you're going, Jeremy Harris, to to MPs and 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 cabinet ministers, are they asking you about this stuff? Like, are they concerned? Wait, how do we make sure that we can maximize our instrumental use of AI without basically becoming slaves to it and or or undermining our own workforce? I think it's a, that's a really good question and. Phrased in certain ways, that kind of question is something that does need to be addressed. What my focus is right now is just getting people to recognize that there is a public safety story that does not sound like that, by the way, just yet. Right? We are not there yet, but there are steps we need to put in place if we're just going to think about the long-term implications of where things might be going with AI. And there's simple things we can do. Those are the things that we're advocating for today, and they target things like the malicious use of AI and AI accident risk in the nearer term. Mm. And, and the institutions that we build to tackle those problems those are the institutions that we need to think more long-term about this stuff. 
There's a lot of people listening to Jeremy Harris across our country, and they're fighting because their businesses are struggling, their supply chain, they're in, it's competitive, there's a labor market shortage, and they're saying, well, I'd like to use AI like 30% of companies around the world are using AI in some part, and big companies are implementing it. How useful is it to people who are saying, how can I benefit from AI right now? There's a huge opportunity here. So one of the key breakthroughs that's happened is we now have AIs that can take essentially natural language, language instruction, and use that to perform valuable tasks. You can take an AI system, like one of these super massive systems that we were talking about that we've been building recently, and you can feed it a prompt like, hey, I want you to do X. I want you to translate this sentence to me in French, for example. And it will do that. Now, one of the consequences of this is that all of a sudden, it creates a situation where you don't have to be technical to get value out of AI systems. You just need to work on your ability to prompt these systems in the right way, to figure out well, what language quirks do I need to keep in mind? How do I need to ask my question to the system, again, in plain English, to get it to produce the outcome that I want? And so this idea of engineering prompts to these systems, it's called prompt engineering, it's a completely new discipline, did not exist two years ago, but thanks to the systems that we have today that can essentially understand and extend English language text, you can actually get real value from these systems without being wow. technical. So tons of low-hanging fruit. And, you know, lots of, and if someone's listening and says, okay, I don't want to miss the future. I miss the internet. I missed all this. How do I, like, what, what would, is there anything someone should say, I want to learn more about this. I want to prepare. I want to future-proof myself by preparing. I don't want to be in an industry that's going to be irrelevant in five years because of AI. What, can, how, what would you recommend someone do right now to sort of, to get in the AI game and, you know, even just the knowledge game, the comfort zone? I think, yeah, it's a great question. So I think one thing I'd recommend is we actually, you know, we maintain a service exactly like this it's called AITracker.org. And uh, it's a free service. We basically, most of our work actually we do for free just because we're concerned about the implications of this stuff. Um, and it catalogs the latest advances in AI. And it shows you in plain English what these advances mean for things like malicious use, things like AI accidents, but also for capabilities. You can look at these and go, oh, AI can do this now. That's interesting. Right. Um, AI- more broadly... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I got about 30 seconds, but go ahead. Like, I don't want to cut you off. I could keep talking to you forever. <laughs> go ahead. No worries. No, I was just going to say more broadly, I mean, podcasts are a great source. I would recommend John's Super Data Science podcast. And selfishly, you know, if, if you want to stop by Towards Data Science, you're, you're more than welcome anytime. <laughs> Toward Data Science podcast is awesome. Uh, Jeremy Harris, co-founder of Aletheia AI Safety Company. AITracker.org is a great place to check stuff out. Folks, one of the reasons we're focusing in on this This is coming. It doesn't matter if you're into it or you're not into it. It is into you. Okay? It's coming. Uh, Jeremy, thank you, man. Come back anytime and and check out folks toward Data Science Podcast. Thanks, man. Really appreciate it, Evan. Wow, that is great. Overhyped and underplayed next. Stay with us. Listening to the iHeart Radio Talk Network, and this is the Evan Solomon Show. You know, I got a memo from Scott Reed's manager saying you got to play heavy metal music to jack people up before we start. Overhyped and underplayed. 
overhyped. Great jobs and opportunity. In this election, here's what I want to do. Or underplayed. And then we got to get the heavy metal music again back for Scott Reed, CTV News political commentator, former communications director for Prime Minister Paul Martin. Do you have a go-to locker room song, like the song that you have to play to get your the jam going? What is that? What is that moment? It is like, are you Scott Reed? The danger zone, like Tom Cruise, are you? What do, what do you got going there? I'm going to shock you with this. The answer, and this is the honest answer, is the beautiful ones by Prince from wow. you know the massive Purple Rain album. And I say it's shocking because it's not like you know pour some sugar on me. It's not like high voltage heavy metal, but it's like this like it was this like song that's like overwrought and you know wind that's you up. And I used to going? sit at my locker and just completely jacked myself to that before like a football game or something when I was in high school. Wow. I have a, I have a, a sort of a playlist when I run alone. That is all the kind of get me going music this morning in the uh, humidity. I had what really got me going today was eminence front by the who, right? Which is a great song. And then well, you don't like that, that song. Dynamite song, killer song, fantastic song. Yeah, it is. I never even, it took me about 25 years to even understand what eminence front means. Yeah. Do you even know what it means? I still don't. I, it means you're putting on, it's all about phonies, it's right? All you're about putting on phony. It's all about being a phony. Eminent, yeah. Yeah. That's what it's all about. It's like everybody's a phony, right? Yeah. Eminence front. But I've never heard that expression. It's a put on. It's a put on. It's a put on. That's right. And Curtis Mayfield. You ever listen to Curtis Mayfield? A little bit. Not a huge Mayfield guy. I'm just going to tell you something. Listen to Curtis Mayfield, not the single uh, version of Move On Up, which is incredible. But when you finish the show today and you're taking a walk, whatever, get the extended version of Move On Up by Curtis Mayfield, folks. There's like eight minutes. I think if that does not get you going, Move On Up, Curtis Mayfield, that is like as good as it gets in my view. Well, not to extend this into music go for ahead, much ahead, longer. That I mind. Music, we, we need a political I soundtrack. I literally just got back to Toronto. Literally pulled in right. just now. Uh, and taking this, um, having come from uh, Upper New York State, uh, Rochester area, where uh, we went down last night to see... Um, See Jason Isbell play. Now you want to talk about a musician? What okay. a what a performance! I Who did you go on. now? Did this was this the David Hurley's 60th birthday party? This is part of the David Hurley 60th. Yes, this is okay. like in its it's, okay. it's it's 60th week, right? So yeah. Wow. So so, so are you, you is know. this like old guy music now? What is this? Absolutely. I just threw that in there. You look at you. You just that just hit you like an arrow. That hurt. Not me, man. I'm not 60. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not, to you know, you like, sort of darting organ failure and trying to live through my seventh decade. That's Hurley's problem. I'm, 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 I'm a youngster. I'm a pop. I'm a cold. Uh, is Marco Mendicino in trouble after he said this? I mean, people are calling for his resignation now and, and no one knows what's true. Here's an audio package of back from anything from, um, 
February and March when he's basically explicitly saying, uh, I listen to the advice of police. Here's Mendicino. We invoked the Emergencies Act after we received advice from law enforcement. And it was only after police told us that they needed this special power to ensure that they could restore public safety. We continue to listen very carefully to the advice that we're getting uh, from our police services who say that the Emergencies Act is instrumental in having addressed the blockades at ports of entry and continues to be instrumental right. in prevent them. Yeah, police one of those clips uh Scott Reed says police told us Bill Blair told committee, yeah, police never told us anything. Is he in trouble the conservative says got to resign over this. See, I I think this is like literally the definition of overhyped. I think it's just, I think it's a it, he's in a spot of trouble and he's taking punches and by the way Marco's a friend of mine so I should just lay that out there so you could discount my opinion if you like. But um, Marco's also had something of a, a bit of a blessed political life, right? Like it's not been a long career, but he's one of those guys that everybody on all sides likes that everybody says, you know, really decent guy. So this is the first time he's sort of gotten bruised up and he got bruised up because he does what people do in government, right? He's speaking too loose. And, um, you know, and so now, so I think it's overhyped to call for his resignation. I think that's, you know, it, it turns it into like, you know, political theater. Okay. So if that's a killing offense and what isn't all, but you know, to me, the real problem here is that the liberals, again, like on these big issues, why, like, why were they seeking to suggest that they did or that they required the police to activate them? Like, I just don't understand why they aren't fighting this on town square ground, like meaning saying, hey, you know what? Our institutions failed the people of Ottawa for three weeks. The city ground to a halt. People didn't feel safe. There was no order. And yeah, this is a big chorus tool, but ultimately it was the only tool available to us. And guess what? Within like days of it happening, the problem was fixed. So kiss it. We were right to do it and we handled it well right. and we were. But, but that's not how it's rolling out. I sounds good. Post facto, like Bill Blair, I'm not aware of any recommendation of law enforcement. Quite frankly, this is a decision of government. Frankly, I would be surprised if the police had actually made a policy recommendation or asked of any for any legislative authority. I do not believe it would have been appropriate. Then you've got multiple quotes from Marco saying, you know, the police told us it's like this is consequential. This is like, how are they blowing the justification of this if they think they're in? Because I've spoken to them. They all think it was the right thing to do. They think, don't fall for this. This is a distraction from the conservatives who supported the truckers. And now we're, but they're the government. They invoke the Emergencies Act. It's a big thing to invoke. Are they screwing up the justification? Yes, absolutely. And, and, And it starts even before these. Uh, quotes. It starts from a premise, and the premise is that they had to. They got governmentitis, man. They start from the premise that they must provide some technical, legal, you know, justification, as opposed to. And obviously, there's a statute, and you have to demonstrate that there was justification for it. But like, there is a common sense proposition, and it should have been launched. And they should never, for one second, have looked like they were trying to shirk responsibility. Why would they? Why would they require somebody else? Why wouldn't you say, "Yeah, you're damn right." I bellied up and said. We're going to do it because we had to. Right. And so I think that's 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 the mistake. And they rob themselves now of the ability to make yeah. the counter arguments with effect. All they had to say is police were overwhelmed. We looked at it. We're the government. We're a public. We believe in public safety. We invoked it. Done. It's like, OK, now it, yeah. that's it. We, we, we thought the we looked at the police three weeks in front of Parliament Hill. And we're like, yeah, they can't handle it. It's done. We don't need their. They don't need to tell us what to do. 
Uh, I know Christian Freeland's about to speak. Uh, overhyped or underplayed her inflation speech and what they can do about it. She's speaking right now. Well, I think it's I think it's overhyped uh, in this definition. I, I mean, we have to see what the speech says. But the fact that they've already previewed that there will be no new details, no new measures, no new actions, and instead what they want to do is what presumably tell us, hey, good news. Turns out the plan that we had before, which by the way we're now going to retcon and pretend right. that that plan was developed toward to fight cost of living. It's all you need in order to fight cost of living. So congratulations, you're welcome. The plan you need is actually the plan you have. I just think it is the worst possible point of departure on this. Um, I don't believe it's the right policy. I cannot believe that there aren't measures that people need to, uh, to see taken for relieving purposes. And I think politically, she's going to stand up and for 45 minutes tell people, like, let me first put the issue in context for you so that it's not as big a problem as you might think. And secondly, let me reassure you that we've already done everything that we need to do, and you can be happy with that. Like, I just think they are asking for, you know, sure. a gigantic conclusion of you don't get it. Right. Yeah. Hey, what's my Christmas present? It's just the one I gave you yesterday, rewrapped. It's still good. It's like, no, they got to do one thing. Even saying we've collected enough uh, on the gas tax, we're going to give a six month uh, reprieve on just something. But repackaging and spending more money, I think it's, uh, as you say, way, way overhyped and maybe even worse, overhyped and underwhelming. Uh, I can't even get to the third one. I don't even have time because we talked about music. Good hey, listen, enjoy the weekend. Happy Father's Day, pal. Thanks. Same to you, brother. We're, See talking, ya. we're talking crypto next. Crypto, is it dead? to your money, your world. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. I don't know about you, but some people thought, maybe I should get into this crypto stuff. Now, I don't. I just want to ask, because every time I mention it, I get the crypto bros talking to me, and and, and a lot of people made a lot of money. People who got in in 2018, 2017, 2017, they made a lot of money. If they Even now, they're still making, oh, I bought it at 5000 It's still $20,000. i have made more money. Well, you're crazy. You're stupid. You don't know anything about crypto. Fair enough. But most people didn't. Most people thought they were buying the dip at 30 Buying the dip at 28 They didn't. Now, maybe it's going to go back up, but it's not based on anything. And Bill Gates and... Warren Buffett, they think they're crap. Bill Gates this week said, if you're into NFTs and cryptocurrencies, you're a great, you're part of the greater fool theory. Here's how he explained it. You have an asset class that's 100% based on sort of greater fool theory that somebody's going to pay more for it than I do, uh, and where it has at its heart sort of this anonymity that, you know, you avoid taxation or any sort of, you know, government rules about kidnapping fees or things. Yeah, and he basically says, this is crazy. You can't do anything with it. Warren Buffett said, I, I wouldn't buy, I never buy this stuff. You know why? Because it didn't do anything. It's just, look, it's a, it's a baseball card. It's a, people like it. If you, if you, you know, you can trade baseball cards as intrinsic values based on what people want, but it doesn't do anything. 
based on anything, and that's true. Gold has some value because you actually use gold for some things like jewelry. NFTs, what is that? It's just a, a, an artificial scarcity value. There's only one of them, but okay. So now look, is there a value in this? Yes. Is digital currency going to be a thing? 100%. We know that. But And is the blockchain going anywhere? No, the blockchain is not going anywhere either. Of course the blockchain is not going anywhere, which is what it's based on. But I just wanted to ask you, because, you know, back in October of 2021, Matt Damon started in a commercial for Crypto.com called Fortune Favors the Brave. Remember this? History is filled with almosts, with those who almost adventured, who almost achieved, but ultimately... For them, it proved to be too much. Then there are others, the ones who embrace the moment and commit. Fortune favors the brave. Yeah, fortune favors the brave. You've got to be brave if you bought then because you've lost about 65% of your value, right? Like, if you followed Matt Damon, I like Matt Damon. I've interviewed Matt Damon. Matt Damon seems like a really good guy. But if you bought some, like, let's say you bought Luna, a stable coin, it's done. Like, who's in that? If you're a Bitcoin person, if you're a crypto person, if you're a trader, if you're a crypto bro, I want to tell, I, I mean, you're in tough, and I, and I don't revel in this. I think a lot of people have lost a lot of money, and a lot of people are still losing a lot of money. Now, something may change. Maybe this is the great buy time. Maybe you're going to ask, hey, you know, Pierre Polyevra says he wants this to be the blockchain capital of the world. And we know that. But text me at 71010 or one 633 1010 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. I know a lot of people are very pro-crypto. A lot of people made a lot of money. A lot of people are still holding on crypto. That's fine. Be careful, though. One of the smartest people I know bought Bitcoin when it was like $15,000. And I said, well, why are you doing it? He goes, I'm rich. I don't care if I lose all my money or I make a lot of money. At one point he was up, you know, he's, he said he was making crazy money. Now he's like, you know, I might lose it all. But I don't have that kind of money. Do you? Is crypto dead? Are you a crypto investor? Do you wish that politicians had stopped pushing it? one 1010 or 71010. Let me read some of the text. Evan, the fundamentals of Bitcoin haven't changed. I'm not selling it. If it goes way down in price, I'm buying more. The progress of Bitcoin is going to be messy. Why? Every government has a different opinion of it, and most people don't know what it is. I just don't buy more than I can afford to lose. I treat it as speculation. Okay. That's good. If you can afford, that's why I, you, Mr. Available, are the guy that if you can afford to lose it all, and you can have, you know, you've taken care of everything. That's great. I think that's a, you, you, if you have the money to be a speculator on things, and if, it, you know, you're not going to lose, you're not depending on your mortgage for it, I think that's great. Evan, I know someone who got into Bitcoin when it first came out. They just sold their coins right before the price dropped and bought a resort in Portugal. Yeah, there's always, look, there's people who made billions of dollars on it. And even like me, I was like, why, why am I missing this? I'm stupid. I missed out on this crazy tulip craze. And if you did buy it early and you sold it at the height, like many people did, hey, you're rich, muzzle tough, great. You got it. You nailed it. You're brilliant. You spiked the landing. There's always stories about that. Hey, people got rich off every craze, but more people are losing their shirt. 
But if you're that guy or that woman that, that, that aced Bitcoin, great. Warren Buffett and Bill Gates are pretty smart. They, they didn't get into it. I mean, crypto's not dead. As much as its own entity, it does seem to follow the stock market. No, no. I mean, it's worse. It's way more volatile. I know tech stocks are getting crushed. But Bitcoin dipped in 2019, and then it skyrocketed. Cryptos have taken a hit. But buy the dips. What's the dip? Was the dip 25, 35? The dip keeps going down. Maybe this is the dip. I don't know. Is 21,000 the dip? Is 15,000 the dip? How much are you prepared to lose? Evan, blockchain is great. Cryptocurrency is silly. I think there will be digital currencies, and some cryptocurrencies are going to survive. This is, this is not going away. This is a correction. Do you think it's going to go back up to 50,000? Maybe. If one finally gets going, but boy, you better be prepared to lose a heck of a lot of money because it's not a currency. Not buying stuff with it. It's a speculation investment. Has anyone out there been burned by crypto yet? Or are you just holding on? Don't invest in something, Evan, you don't understand. I think right there, I'm underlining that. Don't invest in something you don't understand. And by the time the general public hears about investing in Bitcoin, it's too late to make money. Yeah, I'm not 100% sure of that. We all heard about Google. And if you held on to your Google stock or your Apple stock, you made a lot of money. If you held on to it for 20 years, it's a stock split. You made great investments. But those are companies that you can actually understand their revenues. You can understand their product. You can look at their management. Like if you are an analyst and you're looking and you're looking at a company, who's the CEO? What's the management team like? What are the risks on the uh, in the market? What are their products like? What have they done in the last couple of quarters? What do people need? Is there a scarcity? How do you do that for crypto? Like it's completely emotional at this point. I haven't. I never invested in crypto simply because if people can extort money. And not be traced. What good is it? It facilitates criminal activity. Oh, yeah. Uh, Greg, you're right. There's part of that. It's a big, big way to do that. Bitcoin is not a store of value like gold. It's just a speculation. Like, it's going to happen, but do you want your economy based on that? Like, if you, if we had had not, look, the Bank of Canada is not perfect. And we've seen that. We have an inflation crisis going on. Christian Freeland's speaking about that right now. The but would you like an economy based on Bitcoin? I don't want the economy to go up and down like a bucking bronco. Do you? No. You need transparency. You need levers. You just can't ride these crazy things. So digital currency is going to happen, but the banks will have something to say. Someone said, oh, that's going to be control. You want your financial system to have backing and control. You want that. You want stability. Have my boyfriend's daughter, my daughter's boyfriend just lost 50 grand. Welcome to the world. That's happening. This is a boiler room speculation currency. It's penny stocks. <sighs> well, listen, if you have, if fortune favors the brave, you better, you, you better be Braveheart right now because it, it, it's hurting. And I feel for you. Um, okay, we're going to monitor what Christian Freeland says. Does she have anything to say about inflation that's going to be material? And we got a great text and call sections on drinking in the park next.
If they said it, we'll call them on it. You're listening to The Evan Solomon Show on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Well, it's time for you to uh, call me on it. First of all, we've got Dan Riskin coming up with uh, Riskin It All on a nice Thursday. We're going to talk about Father's Day a bit. Apparently, if your dad was around during your teenage years, it changes you internally. That's kind of cool. I want to talk dads. Uh, but before I do, I want to hear from you on drinking. Not that they're related. But they could be. Should drinking and alcohol in parks be legal in every city? Should you be allowed to drink in parks? During the pandemic, it was a no-brainer, yes. Because it was safe. Now that the pandemic's basically over, asterisks, I mean it is, but you got to be careful. Should you be drinking alcohol in parks? Is it Should it be legal? Uh, 1-855-633-1010. I want to ask you because this was a big, big issue. It was a no-brainer in the pandemic. Can you put the um, whiskey bat in the bottle, as it were? Where's the line? Are you for or against? 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Calgary expanded its pilot program in May to loosen drinking alcohol in public spaces. Vancouver and Edmonton expanded their programs that began last year, all pandemic-related. They limit alcohol consumption between 11 a.m. and 9 p.m. That seems reasonable. In Vancouver, public beaches and park amenities like playgrounds and pools are spaces that are off-limited. So you can't go to like a public beach and get hammered or have a drink or a playground. That seems reasonable. Toronto, they voted last month to disallow consuming booze in parks. Wah, wah, wah. Sad trombone. Directing staff to study the issue further and report back in 2023. Why don't you guys have a couple of drinks? Why don't you go out? Go for dinner. Have a couple of drinks. Give the tab to the governor general. And come on back and tell us in 2023. It's kind of weird, right? Because cannabis stores are like a generational wars over legalizing marijuana. Then the pandemic hit and it was like, we will keep the cannabis stores open because they're an essential service. It went from illegal to essential overnight. And by the way, has the roof fallen in on the world because of cannabis? Would the roof fall in because people can have a drink at a park? Don't they do it in Europe? one 1010 or 71010. Penny, 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 penny. What's up? What's up? 20 years ago, we went to a function at, at King's College, Cambridge. Wait, we? Like my, you and me, Penny? Is this a... Did no, I for, no, this is me and my husband. Okay, because for a second there, Penny, I'm like, oh my God, is this something no. I should remember here, but we were too drunk in the park or something? <laughs> Most civilized thing ever. The King's College Choir does a function which is every year, which is now called Singing on the River, right around midsummer. Everyone gathers on the lawn of King's College, Cambridge, with their champagne wow. picnics, listens to the choir, best thing ever. Okay. No problem with drinking in the parks at all. Okay, so that sounds kind of romantico. By the way, I'm coming up on my 21st wedding anniversary. Cool. We're coming you? up on 27 this year. Oh, and is it, just let me, you still got the fire? Of course. Okay, I do just say, of course. My, like, my kids, my kids' friends think we're just the cutest thing ever. So good. Well, I, I I'm with you. 
Okay, well, Penny, so that sounds like a romantico. You should do that again. So you think drinking in the park would be a good idea still? Yeah, it's, it seems doesn't seem to cause any problems in Europe that I could see. I'm with you. Penny, we're uh, civilized. They're more civilized there, I guess. Maybe they are. Maybe they just can handle their booze. Okay, Penny, thanks. Good luck. Enjoy. I, I like that. Uh, 1-855-633-1010 or 71010. Kevin, what's up? Hi. Yes, I think it's good. And I, I was telling the screener that in Europe, I, I noticed, uh, like, on the vending machines, they had a, beer, a button for beer with Coke, Pepsi, beer. Right. And there was no problem. Uh, I would say, why not? Like, why was it illegal in the first place? You know, bad behavior is bad behavior. By giving a ticket for it won't won't stop a problem paper bagger or whatever it is it just it makes no sense and i know i don't know if it's legal or not in montreal but i recall there in the parks you know loads of people on nice days having picnics which usually included yeah. wine I, it may have technically been illegal i'm not sure it's just possibly not enforced do you know i uh, i that's a great i think you can't drink alcohol on montreal streets or alleyways but you can in a park so that's my guy. And I lived in Montreal for about five years. My kids go to school there. Yeah, yeah like I think you're right. I'm did, pretty did sure. Did you ever yeah. go to the Tam Tam? Yes. Sure. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, I used, I actually made $50 air collecting empties before. So yeah, was, I like that. Was, well, that's good. Cool. Yeah. That's no, it's, a, it's just, you know, bad behavior is bad behavior. And I would go one step further. I don't, I don't see a problem with passengers and vehicles drinking. It's, if you're not driving. Why can't you sit oh, there? Okay. I, mean, I, I think you know, the, I think I, oh, have, that's interesting. You wow. know, like if if you don't if you know this, you, you stay sober when you drive. If you don't have the discipline, the self discipline to not, you know, borrow your pass, you know, take a swig off your passenger's beer or whatever. Yeah, you know, I, 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 Kevin, I, I, I think know. that I don't know that. I think I, I may draw lunges because I don't know if I want the you know people partying in the car, but I appreciate that. Because uh, then there's a they're they're in a moving vehicle. Okay, but I appreciate that, Kevin. Uh, let me, uh, Peter. I'm going to go to you. Let me just quickly uh, give some text here. Uh, this one's great from Jake. Hey, Ev, I'm so sick of breathing in everyone's weed smoke at the beach, and I can't have a beer or two without concealing it. That that's actually a fair point, Peter. What's up? Yeah, I'm in the uh, the camp that I think uh, I don't have enough confidence that people would treat it uh, responsibly. I think there'd be too much partying and noise and uh, littering. So individually, though, I mean, for somebody to have a glass of wine in the park, sure, but I just think it's uh, too ripe for abuse. Yeah, thanks, Peter. It's funny because some people say, yeah, like, I'd like to have a wine, but everyone's going to abuse it. Someone's like, drinking in the, Frankenstein says to me, drinking in the park, ridiculous. Yeah, sure, everyone can handle their alcohol. Don't think so. I bet driving infractions will go up. Police response in parks due to violent outbursts. Maybe. Like, there's a lot of people that don't like it, Evan. I don't mind making it illegal to drink in parks, but... Legal, rather, but what I don't understand is when they do outdoor concerts in Montreal, where where you're not allowed to bring alcohol. Yeah, I just think. Look, I, I don't like it around playgrounds. I I don't mind it, by the way, in certain times, like after twelve o'clock. No, you got to put it away. What's wrong with that? Just 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 have a closing time in the park, right? Is that so crazy? And Evan, I think certain parks should be allowed to drink, and certain parks should be dry. Oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, Mariana, what's up? Yeah, hi. Can you hear me? I got you, Mariana. This is the magic of telephones. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, no, I don't think it's a good idea. Uh, with the comments previously on Europe, Europe is very different. Uh, we've lived in Europe, we have relatives in Europe. 
Uh, in Europe, people treat parks as an extension of their homes, of their living rooms. It's not the same here. And I think nothing good can come of it. There's no advantages to drinking in a park. There's more risk of having broken glass. Um, people that go there with their pets and their children to play will think twice about it. Are we going to be next to a group of people that are drinking? Will they stop after two? Will they have more? Will it get, you know, rapid? I don't think anything good will right. come well, of it, so I'm against it. Marianne, first of all, I, you've raised a really great point. I really appreciate it, which is, is there a different attitude in Europe and North America? And what you've happened upon, yes. I think, is really critical, which is Europeans, they value, because they have such so little room, they value public spaces, Thanks. town squares, because they don't, they live in small apartments because there's, you know, land is expensive. Mm-hmm. Here we live in Canada. People want suburbs and sprawling homes. We privatize our public spaces. You want a big yard and your own pool. And so the public spaces are kind of not considered that important and maybe right for abuse. I think that's a really interesting point, Mariana. Thank you for that. that that's cool. That could be the most interesting uh, point of the day there from Mariana, which is do we really value public spaces in Canada or do we privatize them the way Europeans don't? Like they really care about their public spaces because that's where they socialize. All right, I got to take a break. Maybe I'll just have a, a commercial drink or something. I, I'm not a big drinker. The odd one's not terrible. Dan Riskin, we're going to talk about the science of Father's Day. Uh, actually, this is very cool. Stay with us. the story to life. It's Evan Solomon on the iHeartRadio Talk Network. Hey, Dad? You want to have a catch? I'd like that. Feel the dreams. Father's Day coming up Sunday. I like Father's Day. It'll be my first Father's Day without my father. And that will be strange. It'll be a bit of a field of dreams. You just have to connect through our hearts. But there's actually a way to connect more than just through the memory. It's actually maybe my father biologically changed me. There's been a multi-year study on the science of being a Father's Day. So get this. Maybe there's a science to who you are, and, and it comes from your parents. Dan Riskin, our CTV science and technology specialist, and also a father, joins me. Happy Father's Day, almost. Happy almost Father's Day to you. So do you, well, what's the tradition in the old Riskin household? Like, what will you do on Father's Day? Well, every Father's Day, I am entitled, according to the law of my house, yeah. to one nap. And I take that on Father's Day. I don't often get naps because oh, really? it's always just, well, I've got young kids and it's always so chaotic. But on Father's Day, I can kind of bank on the idea that I'm yeah. going to get a nap. And that really, I, I just look forward to it. And then I enjoy it when it happens. And I, clearly I'm an old man now because there well, are other things you should be like wanting to go to a baseball game or something. But I just want a nap. You know, it's you? Funny, it's, well, it's funny you should say that because when, when my kids were really young, like, you know, babies, you know, when, when you're bent over, you're not vertical yet, you know, you're, you're yeah. crawling around. 
And I remember it was like a Sunday and it was kind of, I was tired. I'd been up all night, you know, with the kids. And I decided to, and I never sleep at night and I, I, I basically never nap. So I, I turned, I sort of lay on the couch and, and my wife, the kids were there. Like our kids are 18 months apart. Right. And she's, cool. she's like, what are you doing? And I said, I don't know why I said, well, I was just thinking about taking a nap. And my wife says, a nap? There's no naps. There's no more napping. No, you're not napping. There's no napping. The napping is for the babies. You're not yes. napping. The napping is not for the dads. The right. napping's for the babies. Get up. There's like a million things to do. And that was like the last nap I had in like 20 years. But 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 Father's Day, it's so funny that you say that. A father said you can say, you know what, I'm gonna nap. They're like, all right. And they get it. You by the laws of fatherhood, you're allowed to nap on Father's Day. I'm with you on that. It's not a huge ask. I mean, you really, you're not asked to do anything except for right. a different room just for a Just leave me alone. Instead yeah. of me having to go to the bathroom for like a half an hour just to be alone. <laughs> it's like, what are you doing in there? Trick. It's like, it's not my alone time. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It, it, yeah, it's, I guess that's what makes Father's Day special is you get to spend right. your time napping instead of on the toilet. Right. And family. you know yeah. people that don't have kids when they're like, why do you always spend so much time in the bathroom? It's like, it's my, like, I've moved my computer in there, like books. Oh, yeah. My washroom starts to look like my bedroom. It's like, what's going on? Yeah. It's, like, it's I'm alone. Yeah, that's what's there's going a lock on, on that door. <laughs> there's a lock on that door. Okay, what's the science of fatherhood? So this is a really cool paper that just came out in Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, which is a very prestigious paper. And it looked at longitudinal data for uh, father-son dyads in the Philippines. And what they found was, first of all, it reinforced something that we already know, which is a really cool thing about testosterone. When you're an, an animal that makes testosterone, when you're a, a male of the species, you're, you're, sometimes you're fighting with other males, sometimes you're competing, sometimes you're trying to attract females, you're doing all these different things. And testosterone plays a role in a lot of those, but it makes you aggressive. And when it's a well-known fact that when men, human men, have a baby, it drops their testosterone levels. Instinctively, it turns them into gentler creatures. And if that dad spends lots of time with the baby and the child as it develops, those testosterone levels stay suppressed. And the idea is that that's part of what makes you a good dad, is that you're less aggressive, you're not spending your time looking to make other babies at the same rate that you might have been in your past. You're focused on the family you have, and that's what you do. And what this new paper shows, and this is crazy, is that if when you were a teenager, your dad spent a lot of time with you, then that effect is amplified when you become a dad. So in other words, if your dad was around a lot when you were a teenager, your testosterone levels are going to drop even more when you become a dad than they would otherwise. Really? Yeah. And so this Why? Is how, how, did that, how would that even work? Like, that's so weird. Well, right now it's a correlation. They're not clear on exactly okay, how it happens, okay, but right. they think that there's a window of development because this doesn't happen if the dads were around when it was a baby, it doesn't work. If the dads were around when they were a child leading up to becoming a teenager, it doesn't work. It's really there's something developmental happening in the teenage years where there's some kind of a window open developmentally where you're recording what's going on around you. And that sort of sets you up for what kind of a dad you're going to be. And so the idea from this is that when you're investing in your sons, you're investing in their kids as well. You're investing in your grandkids when if you invest in your sons when they're teenagers. And this is just a really cool sort of finding that links hormones to behavior, to traditions, to naps on Father's Day. It all comes together. Wow. So, so, so that's really interesting. I was very lucky to have a dad who was around a lot. I don't know about you. Did you get that kind of good fortune? 
Yeah, I did. My dad was around a lot, too. And, and, you know, like there's a lot of variability in different families in terms of different roles that people play and sometimes grandparents step in. And so it's not clear exactly what it is that a father might provide that other caregivers might or might not provide. This Again, it's a correlational data set. So they're kind of breaking things down into the simplest form. But you could take this research and take wow. it further and look at non-traditional families and look at different roles that people play or, you know, a family with two dads or, or with two moms or something like that and try to figure out what mm. whether those roles get played by other people or if it's set by something about the smell of the parent or some other mechanism that sort of sets it in place. It's, it's a weird finding right now, and there's, it just opens up a ton of questions. It's so cool, and it just shows you that you're literally changed by it. And I have always quoted this, and I've said it on the show before, that a coach said to me, how do kids spell love, T-I-M-E? In other words, they just want to be with you. They just want yeah. to be with you. By the way, um, we're getting a <laughs> Yeah, I know, but that's true. Like, yeah. quality time is an adult concept. Kids just, yeah. they don't care what you're doing. They just want to be with their just folks. Time. Just time. Uh, napping is really catching fire here. I wish I could have just taped your conversation with Dan about napping and sent it to my husband. He doesn't understand why I get so pissed off every time he goes for a nap. We have three kids. <laughs> or. Yeah. Oh, my God, my husband naps every week, and it drives me crazy. Guys, when you have little kids, there is no more napping, okay? you don't get naps. You're you're on call for the early childhood, except maybe if you can call it in. Birthdays or Father's Day, you can try to pull rank. You can call it in. But you got you got to negotiate that ahead of time. You can't just disappear. There's only one other. Go. There's only one other thing that you can screw up with your partner when you say, uh, "Are you going out tonight, honey?" Okay, I guess I'll babysit. You like, oh, and then and they go, and then you, my wife's like, "Honey, you're not babysitting your kids. You're parenting. You know this is. You're not the babysitter. You're the parent. You dummy." Yeah. I was. Yeah. I said that. I said that once, and then I took a nap permanently. If I said it twice. <laughs> <laughs> You'll be taking a nap on the couch for the rest of the week. I think I'll be taking the dirt nap. Yeah. Uh, okay. Hey, happy Father's Day. I hope you have a great nap, then, because it's the only one you're getting, maybe till your birthday. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. But I'll take it, and I will think of you as I drift to sleep, Evan. Thanks for a great conversation, as usual. Yeah, happy uh, Father's Day. Fathers change you. Hang out with your kids. It makes them better parents. That is great. There's actually science coming out on that. Um, lots of you people are, are, are talking about the nap stuff. Somebody just said to me, Evan, you get left alone in the bathroom. Luxury. It's usually when my daughter wants me to come for snacks or get her something. Yeah. I tell you, I would put like a double lock on the bathroom. Uh, happy Father's Day. I'll see you on Power Play tonight. I'll try to go for a nap or something or a drink in a park. That was a fun show today. I'll appreciate the calls. I love you, Dad. <laughs>